nowhere else can you be a neuroradiologist but still go be a command surgeon, be a commander, jump out of airplanes, repel out of helicopters, fly around in helicopters, do all those things and still have a successful career. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome Army Colonel Dr. Michael Wirt to WarDocs. Dr. Wirt is currently the Chief of Radiology Department at Brook Army Medical Center. He completed his residency training in diagnostic radiology at Tripler Army Medical Center and did a neuroradiology fellowship at UC San Francisco. Dr. Wirt has held multiple strategic operational leadership positions and has deployed multiple times to Southwest Asia. He has commanded the United States Army Institute of Surgical Research and recently served as the commander of Brook Army Medical Center. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome Army neuroradiologist Colonel Mike Wirt to Wardox. Mike, thanks for joining us today. No, thank you for having me. Prior to becoming a physician, you were enlisted and then completed officer candidate school at Fort Benning. Tell us about that experience and how it shaped your subsequent military career as a physician. Well, I came from basic training essentially as a private first class. And uh, interestingly, I was the last of the basic training classes to go through the old wooden barracks in Fort Knox, Kentucky. So uh, those are old World War II barracks. And we moved from there uh, into some cinder blocks. And then uh, I waited a couple of months and then transitioned over to OCS. And OCS was an eye-opener. I thought I understood what the Army was going to be like going to basic training. You know, everybody's seen the movie Stripes. So you kind of have the general idea of this is what they're going to do to you at basic training. They're going to teach you a bunch of things. And and they really did. But when I went to officer candidate school, that experience at Fort Benning was completely different. It was a lot more of a opportunity to weed out people who they didn't feel appropriate to be officers and trying to get people to actually quit. And I think that that it shaped me in a lot of ways because it gave me, I think, uh, perseverance, and it gave me attention to detail and uh, how to fit into a culture that I was unfamiliar with coming into the Army, you know, from a civilian life. And it allowed me, I think, time management uh, skills uh, that I wouldn't have probably had or understood without a little bit of pressure uh, exerted from the attack officer. So I think it shaped a lot of my ability to overcome obstacles. And by doing that, progressing through different military training schools from there on, or, or going to medical school, or anything that I did after that, I could relate back to what it was like to go to OCS and uh, knew if I could get through that, I could probably get through a lot of other things. You were in the chemical corps initially as an officer. How did you go from there to medical school? Well, funny enough, so coming out of OCS, I had a degree in biochemistry, and at the end of OCS, you're, you're kind of the last people to get selected into uh, whatever career areas are still left. And so West Point's been through and they've selected the different combat arms uh, units. And then uh, ROTC has gone through and I happened to go through OCS in August. So 
pretty much everything had been taken. They saw biochemistry, they said chemical core. So uh, suddenly I was in the chemical core and it took me almost, well, three years of active duty and then almost nine years in the reserves to work my way out of the chemical core. And in, and the, really the only way out was to going to medical school. A chemical is always a shortage branch and they're not gonna branch transfer you. So it ended up working out really well. And it, in the chemical core gave me a, a lot of basis of understanding. And I attribute a lot of the operational assignments I had in the chemical core uh, from platoon leader to XO to acting company commander, and then working as a uh, battalion and brigade chemical officer. And being able to do that gave me the operational planning experience that helped me considerably as a young medical corps officer out with line units. I could function within the battalion and brigade staffs, understand that role, and then integrate the medical role as part of the staff instead of being kind of a separate entity of medical. And then there's the operational component of whatever unit I was in. So when you completed medical school, you did a general surgery internship. What eventually led you to radiology? Well, uh, it's another interesting story because I enjoyed surgery. I, I enjoyed being in the OR, a hard general surgery internship with uh, a couple of extra rotations in orthopedics. And I thought, I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon. And so to be an orthopedic surgeon, nobody went straight through. Everybody had to do a general medical officer rotation at the time. So I was in Tripler in Hawaii and thought, well, the shortest general medical officer rotation I can do is go to Korea and come back. So that was my plan. I get out to Korea and I get a phone call one day from uh, one of my friends who I'd gone to medical school with, who happened to be in the radiology uh, residency program at Tripler. And they said, somebody has decided not to continue in the program and we have an opening. We'd like to get you back from Korea if you're interested and we'll cut your tour short and we'll get you into the radiology program. And so a lot of wrangling went on and I went back and I interviewed at Tripler and was selected or offered a position. And uh, what ended up happening was that the Korea was, was still a high priority fill. They weren't going to take me out of Korea early, but they did save a slot for me to start in the next uh, academic year. And I really looked at my background. I, I was a researcher and, a, you know, as a biochemist, my interest was really in biophysics and my background for my PhD work. And I did a postdoctoral fellowship in bio kind of magnetic resonance. So magnetic resonance is the foundation for MRI. And a lot of my postdoctoral work was also with using x-rays. And so the natural habitat for me, I was kind of forcing myself into orthopedics, which is really mechanics, where I was a molecular physics kind of guy. And radiology was just a natural fit. So it was a, a pretty easy uh, decision to come back and, and really get into radiology. And then uh, in thinking about it in the long term, I was also an older officer at the time, and it was probably a better lifestyle change to make at the time coming in and doing radiology, where I think I could practice longer starting medical school a little bit later age than the average person. You're a neuroradiologist, and you completed your fellowship training in neuroradiology at the University of California, San Francisco, which I'm proud to say is also my fellowship alma mater. Many people may not know what that job entails. Can you tell us about a neuroradiologist and your initial years out of fellowship and practice? It's really a fantastic subspecialty because you get to 
use your hands. You can do as many different types of interventional procedures as you want, but you also have a diagnostic component. So you're reading x-rays, you're looking at CAT scans, you're looking at MRIs. And so neuroradiology specializes in looking at the brain, spine, and head and neck. And, uh, you know, we're diagnosing brain tumors and we're looking for degenerative, degenerative spine disease. And then we're looking for potential ways to make patients better using interventions. The other really uh, subspecialty arm of neuroradiology is neurointerventional. And that's where, you know, you can put a catheter inside the vessels and, and you guide that catheter up into the brain. And you can put small soft coils in aneurysms, which then will clot off the blood within the aneurysm and then make it protected from rupturing. Or you can do things like you can inject glue into a tumor, and which is called embolization. And you can stop that tumor from being functional and then aid the surgeons in being able to take it out without risks of bleeding. So there's a lot of surgical areas to neuroradiology, and that's what I think I really enjoyed about the subspecialty is I was able to kind of cross back to my roots as a, you know, a general surgery intern and be able to do procedures, but also be able to do diagnostic studies. So in 2009, you served as a brigade surgeon for the 502nd Infantry Regiment, 101st Airborne Division Air Assault. How does somebody who can put coils in an aneurysm wind up in that role? Interestingly, the radiology consultant to the Surgeon General also wondered the same thing. And uh, he was wondering why I had volunteered and asked to be assigned as a brigade surgeon. But uh, thinking back to my time, I had an initial rotation in Korea as a battalion surgeon when I was that general medical officer. And I really enjoyed being out with uh, soldiers and the troops in the field. And having the prior experience being uh, an operations officer and a chemical officer and other combat arms units, I thought, well, this is probably my last chance to ever be out with troops and serve with troops in the field. And the rest of my time was probably going to be back in a hospital doing neuroradiology. So I was going to take a, a short hiatus from being in the hospital, and I volunteered to go to be a brigade surgeon. And the instrumental part of that was really my hospital commander at the time, Colonel John Powell. He's retired now, but he's a, he was a fantastic leader and a really inspirational soldier who'd been out and done all these types of jobs. And I looked at him and I talked with him and he, he said, you know, you could do that if you want. And I think I would support it. And I'll send you to some of the fun schools that you can do to be prepared to go out and do it. So I got to go to airborne school and air assault school and flight surgeon course and got completely prepared to go and either be a brigade surgeon. I asked him for the 101st or the 82nd Airborne and happened to be an opening at the 101st, and I was fortunate enough to get it. And, uh, and I went not as a professional filler, but actually as a, a full two-year assignment to the brigade. And I thought that was important because I knew the brigade was going to be on a cycle of deployment, and I would be able to train with the brigade, um, learn, and be prepared to go to the, the next deployment that they'd go on as their surgeon. So tell us about your deployment to Afghanistan in 2010. What was your role and do you have any memorable experiences that you'd like to share? Went out as the task force strike surgeon and uh, it was a combined task force with an Afghan uh, brigade, the 3rd Kandak, uh, the 205th Corps. And between the Afghan brigade, essentially our brigade, and different augmented units coming from uh, 3rd Brigade 101st, 1st Brigade 101st, 2nd, 2nd Battalion of the uh, 82nd, multiple different 
battalions uh, contributed to our combined task force. It ended up being about 17 partnered battalions or about 8,500 soldiers, if you include all the Afghans. So we were really almost a division size element. And we were the lead element of the surge that went into regional command south, which was the Kandahar, Argandab area of, of Afghanistan. This was uh, really the home of the Taliban and the first large-scale U.S. force presence in this area really ever. There were, We replaced one battalion of 4th ID, and uh, before that, that battalion had replaced a company of Canadians in the area of Zari province, which is west of Kandahar City by about uh, 20 kilometers or so. And the deployment uh, was probably the most remarkable time of my life and probably the pinnacle of any time I've ever spent in the in the military, any assignment, anywhere. It was due to the, you know, the intense pressure of the of the combat as well as the the mission itself, uh, trying to, you know, liberate that area, provide peace stability. And it was fairly overwhelming in the beginning. You know, again, I think being a the general surgery side of me helped quite a bit because my role was not only the force health protection for the brigade, but also aligning and planning the medical support plan for all of the operations in that area of responsibility. So every offensive operation, defensive operation, we would plan all of the medical assets. We would support special operations in the area. And we would had a role too in our FOB, it was called Ford Operating Base Wilson, and we renamed that PASAB after an Afghan area. And then uh, we would partner every day with the Afghan medical team, as well as uh, uh, with uh, different units that would come through. And then we provide the medical support for all the operations. So you received the combat field medical badge. Was that on that deployment? And can you tell us about that story? Yeah, that was on that one. Uh, yeah, I had a, a, a couple of crazy, crazy times while I was out there. Uh, one of them was the actually flying from Kandahar Air Base over to... Uh, to to the Ford operating base. The first time I was leaving CAF to go to go out there, we were in a Chinook loaded down with 30 other troops and all your bags and everything else moving out to the FOB. And immediately upon leaving the perimeter of CAF, we started taking fire from the ground. The area had not been secured and uh, we had multiple, the heavy machine guns that uh, you'd often see the uh, Taliban riding around in the back of pickup trucks kind of shooting shooting at the aircraft. Well, they, they had machine guns spread throughout the pathways because they kind of knew the directions we'd fly between mountains. And uh, we had tracer fire coming past the helicopter and the helicopter shooting off flares and the door gunners are shooting down at the guy shooting at us. I'm going, I'm not even going to make it to the fob on the first try. <laughs> so it was, uh, that was kind of one of these harrowing events. And then uh, specifically for the combat medical badge, we were actually at lunch. So this isn't very dramatic, you know, up front. Here we are at lunch and I've got the senior medical officer for regional command south, who at that time was Colonel Martin Bricknell, a British officer. And the regional command south was under a Canadian two-star general. And he is at lunch with us with his chief warrant officer, who was kind of like a sergeant major who accompanied him. And we're eating in a dining facility, maybe three or 400 yards from the aid station. And all of a sudden you hear, you know, boom, boom, boom. And we're going, is that incoming or is that outgoing? Because we had 
we had artillery on the base. We had uh, mortars on the base. But you're always trying to tell, is this coming in or is this coming out? And then we're hearing explosions and we're like, that? no, that's incoming. So we're about halfway through our deployments. We're a little bit used to it, but we still, we get down. Um, we start making movements out of the dining facility and we're trying to get to the, uh, the bunker system. And I have my Captain Pat Glass, who is my uh, Medical Service Corps officer, and I'm taking, say, take the colonel, get him inside the bunker. So he gets in and gets him buried deep in the bunker and he's safe. And then the warrant officer and I, by the time we get there, we're right at the edge of the bunker and more incoming rounds are going. And then we're getting calls for medic. And so, you know, we know I'm looking at the warrant officer. He's he's a he's essentially a senior 68 whiskey or a, a line medic. And uh, he's looking at me and I said, let's go. And so we go out and we're running towards the towards the uh, wounded and the fire and there's still artillery. You know, these are I think uh, they were using recoilless rifle rounds at the time, 82 millimeter recoilless rifles. And so they were shooting those into the into the base and they they were essentially kind of newer to aim because they'd look at some of uh, where our tall um, you know, like radar dishes and things were, and they'd, sh they'd use those as aiming stakes and then shoot at us from a distance. And they were in such low trajectory, it's hard for us to shoot back. And they were hitting around the area. We were going towards the wounded. They end up, you know, they, they, they shoot about 10 rounds or so and they stop. We've got wounded on the ground. We're taking care of them. We're triaging, we're getting gators, bringing them over to the uh, aid station and then taking care of them. And the funny, Funniest thing was that we're we're coming back, going past where the bunker system is, and the uh, medical service corps officer Pat Glass and, and the colonel were in there, and they, they said, "Is it all clear yet?" And I said, "It's never going to be all clear, but if you want to come see us take care of casualties, we're going to the gate station." So we we go hauling off over to there, and and that was that was probably one of the more uh, intense times that we had there. You know, everybody did well, so that was good. You returned to Afghanistan in 2013 as the officer in charge of the United States contingent at the United Kingdom's Bastion Roll 3 Hospital in Helmand Province. Tell us about that assignment and any interesting stories you recall. Yeah, that was one of the most uh, uh, probably lucky and unusual uh, opportunities I've had in the military. They were looking for somebody to be, be the Bastion OIC and I was uh, just coming out of the deputy commander for clinical services job at uh, Fort Campbell. And I uh, put my name in because I figured everybody else was busy. And, and there, you know, they had, there's no way I was going to be selected because it was every, every hospital in the region had to put a name in. And then suddenly I get a, I get a congratulations email. You've been selected. And I'm like, Oh, I guess I'm going to the UK. And uh, this turned out to be an absolutely fantastic deployment. We took a contingent of 80 U.S. providers and nursing staff and uh, provided the bulk of the clinical capability for Bastion Roll 3, which is a multinational field hospital with Estonians, Danes, and the British. And we went to a place called Strensel, England, which is kind of in the northern midsection of England, by the city of York. And we trained with them for about three weeks. Uh, and we end up at the end of that three weeks, we had a culminating uh, validation exercise where we did about 72 hours of continuous operations. And we simulated um, all the different things that we would do at Bastion upon arrival. And they had a mock-up of the hospital to almost to a T so that you knew where you're going from place to place to place. You knew where your office was. And so when you arrived at Bastion, you'd already rehearsed in a situation very similar to what you're going to do in combat. 
And so we went to Bastion Roll Through. It was in Hellman, and it was adjacent to uh, Camp Leatherneck, which was a Marine Corps base. And we ended up uh, ripping in with, with the new hospital. And by day one, the first day that we had taken over after changing with the with the uh, hospital team that was there who rotated out, we had 22 casualties. All of the preparation and all of the rehearsals paid off. And we were operating seamlessly and independently, and we didn't have any hiccups. And it was really the preparation that the British used was uh, phenomenal as far as a uh, an organizational plan to get a team in and out of uh, theater. So it was a, that was a great experience. So you have lots of skills as a radiologist. Did you ever get a chance when you were deployed to take advantage of those? Yeah, actually, mostly at Bastion, though I... We did have an x-ray unit at the Roll 2 uh, in Kandahar when I was a, a brigade surgeon, but that was plain using x-rays and uh, used ultrasound to take care of folks there. At Bastion, we had 264 slice CT scanners. So we had the state-of-the-art modern CT, and we were able to uh, take care of multiple trauma patients, triage, and then read those CTs, help the surgeons make decisions on who they wanted to take to the operating room, and it was really valuable. I think we've made a lot of progress through the time we've been in Iraq and Afghanistan as far as integrating radiology within these field hospitals when we're in a relatively stable environment where we can really be a combat multiplier for the surgeons. From 2012 to 2016, you served as the radiology consultant to the U.S. Army Surgeon General. Tell us about the role of radiologists on the battlefield and some of the issues you help guide for the specialty. It's really evolved. Uh, it started out, you were reading x-rays. And, and now, as, as we just described, you're, you're doing ultrasounds. At Kandahar, uh, we had interventional radiologists who could actually do procedures in those who are too sick to undergo surgery. And we could save them that open procedure by doing something guided by the CT or guided by fluoroscopy. As a consultant, one of the things that I saw in uh, both firsthand as well as had, had anecdotal uh, reports is not a, all of our technologists were trained in how to use the CT scanners. So it's not something that we could easily identify. We would bring technologists along as part of the combat support hospitals, but they may or may not necessarily be trained well, or they, or maybe they were trained at one point in their career, but they haven't used it in many years, or they haven't used that type of scanner before. So what one of the areas that I thought was important is giving the CT uh, tech, when they got their registry, which is kind of their certification, they would get a skill identifier. And I started working on that so that technologists with that skill identifier could then be targeted towards the deploying caches that would have a CT scanner with them. So they'd, they'd be married up and they'd know that they'd have the right skill set to, to deploy and do what we are going to ask them to do. When I went to Bastion, we had one tech who was a nuclear medicine tech. It wasn't a CT tech. So the problem with that is, that, you know, we had to train him on the job then. So we were down attack immediately until we could get him up to speed and then ready to work. So that was one of the important areas. And I think the other is uh, looking, we're looking ultrasound is another big area that, you know, is easily portable, usable on the battlefield. We're working towards getting an ultrasound program for technologists to be trained and then again, get a skill identifier so they can help augment the radiologists. I think the other more important thing is, is you know, the advising the Surgeon General on capability is using tel teleradiology and leveraging. 
that technique so that we were able to eventually get teleradiology into Bastion and get some teleradiology within theater and get some teleradiology from CONUS over to Bagram. And by doing that, you can relieve a little bit of the 24-7. If you only have one radiologist, it can't be awake all the time. But as we know, combat happens 24-7. You never really know when you're going to be called. And that, you know, after a year, your radiologist becomes less functional. So I think leveraging the uh, technology was the other area that what we worked on as, as consultants. And I handed some of this off to my follow-on consultant who also worked on it. What was the most interesting case from a radiology standpoint that you saw when you were deployed? I'd have to say the soldier who got shot in the forehead, whose bullet went right down the inner hemispheric fissure. So right between the two lobes of the brain, all the way to the back of the skull. And he walked into the ED and it looked like he just had a big bruise on his forehead. He didn't know he'd been shot. And we imaged him because he had, you know, he was a little bit, and it wasn't feeling normal, but there was no indication initially that he had been shot in the head. And so that was the most interesting and surprising case that, that we had was you see TM and all of a sudden there's like, uh, there's a bullet in there and uh, nobody, nobody even knew it. And the guy was walking and talking and eventually it was just very fortunate. It slowed it down enough that it didn't even hit uh, any of his venous structures and it didn't, it didn't damage his brain. Wow. That's, that's pretty incredible. That was pretty cool. You have one very unique distinction in that you were the first non-surgical commander of the United States Institute of Surgical Research. What challenges did you face there? And, and tell us a little bit about what you were able to accomplish. Well, I think, uh, you know, everybody is probably looking at me, you know, sideways for sure, coming in as a radiologist. But having the PhD, I think, was very helpful because, you know, half of the the uh, Institute of Surgical Research is the surgery surgery side of the burn center. The other half is all PhD researchers doing phenomenal things to advance combat casualty care. So I think coming in, I already had the acceptance of about half of the population who usually was underrepresented, you know, by by a much more in, you know stronger surgical component and surgical bend to the approach to commanding the, the institute. And then I think having the two deployments and having served both, you know, at role one, role two, so battalion aid station, small facilities augmented by a small surgical capability, all the way up to a role three hospital, and then having to plan and coordinate theater evacuation kind of gave me the, the full scope of what the institute was meant to enable. And so by being able to talk to the surgeons, understand the mission from being there, and then translate that into support for the Institute, they're always doing pretty phenomenal things. We were just finishing working on junctional tourniquets. So if you remember Black Hawk Down, and you know one of the soldiers in Black Hawk Down was shot in the groin, you can't put a tourniquet on that spot. But if you can put pressure on using something called a junctional tourniquet, you can then stop the bleeding in that area. We were looking at better ways to pack those types of wounds with different clotting aids that would stop bleeding without destroying tissue. So we looked at uh, different ways to resuscitate the patient. So if they were bleeding out, you know, Andre Cap, Colonel Andre Cap was one of our great hematology 
experts, and he was working with the Ranger Regiment at that time on whole blood, something that we'd used previously way back in World War II successfully in Korea, but it kind of went, we went away to component therapy where we would divide up certain amounts of red blood cells and platelets and uh, fresh frozen plasma and put that in. And we kind of went back and wanted to take a look at whole blood again. That's really evolved and that's really become the standard now. And then lastly, uh, there was something that we saw at Bastion and being at a role three, it, it really helped me understand when you were, you know, in the first line of the combat uh, hospitals out in the field, you don't really get a chance to do much more than get the patient stabilized, get them on a helicopter and get them to the next level of care. When they come to rule three, the, the combat support hospitals, you get a chance to then do the CAT scans, assess the patient, try to figure out who do you triage and who do you bring into the OR first? Well, there's something called compensatory reserve index, and Dr. Vic Convertino is the lead on that, and he's, he's got an exercise physiology background, and he was very interested in trying to understand, well, if someone comes in with fairly good vital signs, and then you've got someone else with terrible vital signs, they're both kind of stable right now, but you're trying to figure out which one you're going to bring to the OR, normally you'd bring the one with the bad vital signs to the OR because you figure they're probably worse. Well, not necessarily was that always the right answer, and we didn't understand it. Someone who looked reasonably good when they first got there would crash, and then they'd be the one getting you know 100 units of blood products to try to resuscitate them. And there must be something in the genetics or something in the ability of that patient to compensate for that blood loss. And so we looked at this term that we coined compensatory reserve index, and it's research that's ongoing now. But I think it's going to be one of the more important things that we use in modern battlefields of the future is to figure out how to, when you have an overwhelming number of patients, who can wait and who needs to go to the OR? And this might be one of the more important things that we developed. When COVID hit us all in the spring of 2020, you were serving as the deputy commanding officer. And then as COVID's escalating and patient volumes are increasing, you then became the commander of BAMC right in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Tell us about your experience and any lessons you learned during that time period. You had to be agile and adaptive. We didn't know what to expect, to be totally honest. In the beginning, in March of 2020, when, when we were first taking care of initial COVID patients, and our logistics supply line was uncertain as it was throughout the whole country. How many masks did you have? Um, how are we going to decon? How are we going to, how many beds do we need? And we were able to exercise a lot of the plans that we would use if we were the big uh, theater receiving hospital. So if we had a lot of casualty coming in from a war somewhere, we would have to be able to expand. We'd have to be able to adapt and, uh, and that's pretty much what we, we did is we just kept working through different courses of action. And uh, we were very fortunate to have a very resilient team that was used to taking care of complicated patients. And that we, we, just, we just translated it. And then we have such a strong partnership with the city of San Antonio and being able to work with the city um, and work with the University Hospital, which we share half of the trauma system with for San Antonio, we were able to kind of modulate how many ICU beds we were going to fill, how many ICU beds they would fill, how we would take care of trauma 
throughout the city. And by doing that and working in this strong partnership that we've had and we sustain, we were really able to then leverage the strengths and capabilities of all the hospitals in the area. And then BAMC could do its part as well. So you had the opportunity to serve as a hospital commander, also as a command surgeon in Korea. What would you say to a military physician who is interested in in similar leadership roles in the military? It's a great opportunity to learn and see the military medical system at the enterprise level. Oftentimes, as a department chief, you're in almost a tactical fight. Every day, you're worried about, you know, how many staff do I have? What are the cases I have to do today? Or what are the procedures? Is my CAT scanner working? But you're really down at the tactical level, and you don't have to look up much. And if you want to see and understand both how a hospital works and how a hospital system works, taking an opportunity like this is, is really a phenomenal time as far as you get a chance to to really see how the decisions are made at the enterprise level. And I think it's a tough job and it's a job that does take away your a lot of your clinical time. So you have to understand and have to be willing to sacrifice some of the time that you do for individual patient care and then realize that what you're doing for the system is really you're affecting many more patients than you would affect individually, though it's not as personal. You know, you just have to be able to adapt to that as well. So you had mentioned the implementation of teleradiology on the battlefield in Afghanistan. What advancements do you see in military radiology that will improve battlefield care, say, in the next 10 to 20 years? I think we'll still see Teleradiology will get more and more powerful. There may be some automation that comes with that, uh, with artificial intelligence, maybe as far as helping a radiologist, assisting them with reading films, being more accurate. And then I think things are getting smaller and lighter. So I think we're going to still see technology evolving where the capability is not as onerous for the warfighting unit to bring to theater. One of the big things in Korea was the logistics tail for all the medical support. And you're competing with all the warfighting equipment. You might be competing with ammunition. You might be competing with missile launchers. You might be competing with tanks. So everything has to go to a theater area. So if your stuff is big and heavy and takes a lot of space, it's hard to get there. So I think as things get smaller, lighter, and we continue to miniaturize and digitalize uh, radiology, it'll, it'll still uh, be an important enabler for the modern medicine on the battlefield. You're one of the most senior radiologists in the Army and also work in a training program where there's a radiology residency at BAMC. What advice would you give to the residents or even your colleague radiologists as they prepare for being a radiologist in a combat zone? I think, one, you have to be part of the team. You have to be a master of your craft. You have to be able to think on your feet. And I think you have to be able to do the, the main key things are you have to be able to read trauma CAT scans. You have to be able to do ultrasounds. You have to be able to do basic procedures. And then have to understand that you're going to be in a combat zone. So you can't, you have to be a army doctor, not a doctor in the army, you know? So you still have to know some of those military things. So you don't become a liability to others around you and that you're an enabler uh, when you need to be. I think also getting a chance to go out, you understand 
if you can deploy, you'll, you understand the purpose of why you're there because then you're around the troops, you're serving those who are in harm's way in a very real way. And I think it makes a better understanding of when you're back in garrison, why it's important, why, why, why should you stay late to make sure that that one soldier gets taken care of? Or why do you, are you making sure you're taking care of that soldier's family while that soldier's deployed? And knowing by being there, you understand that significant responsibility that you have to take care of others and how it, you can be very isolated as a radiologist. You can sit in your dark room and you can look at your imaging and really not see what the what's going on around you. And I think that deployment experience really helps you uh, for your further career as well. So I'm curious. So, so like in general surgery for our residents, we give them talks about what it's like, you know, what do they, what do they really need to know when they're deployed? Yeah. Does the radiology department do that for the radiology residents? I mean, we talk about it, but I think the radiology job is a little, it can be what you make it. I think you can be as much of it in the team as you want, or you can kind of be that guy who sits in the back and nobody sees you and, you know, the studies come out and every now and then you run to the CAT scanner, you know, and so I, it, it, I think it depends. And a lot of introverts, you know, in radiology, so they don't really like to talk to people. So I'm not, you know, they, it's kind of a strange dynamic sometimes. Well, I know that as a surgeon, I'm sure you've had this experience too. There's, you know, a few times a year, I'll, I'll go hunt down a radiologist and I will make them look at a CT scan with me to, to you know, go, try to glean more information out of the CT scan than I, I can appreciate myself. But I've never been deployed to a location that had a CT scanner. And so that's why I was trying to trying to figure that out from you. Like, what kind of information did the surgeons go to you to say, hey, I need to really get some more information out of that CT scan than I can appreciate myself? Yeah, they would sit. I'll tell you, they'd be breathing on you as the scan was being acquired. So they'd be sitting there and you'd have like 10 or 10 people sitting right behind you all like this, and you're trying to scroll through this thing, and you're pointing out stuff as you go through, and they're going, okay, got that, got that, okay, that doesn't look good, that, okay, this is going to have to go, and now I know I've got to take this approach to go after that thing, but wait a second, what else do I need to know? Because if there's something else, I don't want to miss it and just go after the one shining object. You know, so it was, it was, what's the other incidentals? Is there anything else that's going to get me while I'm in that, that, you know, the patient could decompensate for that I'm not looking for. And all of a sudden now I got another, uh, maybe it's bowel perf to, you know, who knows what, but this, it's, this it's, guy's it's, got a theochromocytoma. Look at that. Yeah. Who knew? <laughs> Can we take that out while we're here? Who knew? Um, but no, it's was, it was kind of one of those where what else is there? And especially when it was blast injury, cause it'd be stuff all over the place and you're trying to figure out okay, the ortho guy needs to know, because we'd often, we'd operate in teams, you know, so we'd have vascular surgeon, orthopedic surgeon, and general surgeons working, and they might be working, at, you know, simultaneously at different parts, and all trying to get stuff done. You get everybody with their own set of questions. It was, ever, that's oh, super stressful, by the way. So, you know, I've, I've been, a, I've been one of those 10 people that's breathing over a radiologist's neck in the trauma bay. I mean, uncountable number of times. Is there, do you remember from one of your deployments if, as that's occurring and they whisk the patient off to the operating room and you finally get a chance to sit down and look through the scan on your own without, you know, the, mm -hmm. the warm air on your neck? Do you remember calling into the operating room or going to the operating room and saying, hey, you know, this, there's one other injury that mm -hmm. uh, I just appreciated. Do you remember that yeah. specific yeah. injury? Uh, typically, 
it would be, you know, maybe it's a, a, a vascular injury because there's shrapnel somewhere, or at least a potential injury where, you know, it's in the, there was, there was all a bunch of tissue damage, but uh, wasn't, wasn't completely appreciated. It wasn't enough extravasation. Maybe the blood flow wasn't super good, but then you're down there and you go, you know what, that looks regular. You know, we need to look at that. We had one guy, a two millimeter close rifle round hit uh, chew. And one of the guys that I worked with was in the chew and he ended up getting blasted with shrapnel. And it was an interesting case because he had a, we, you know, we thought most of the shrapnel was in his groin. So we were looking at, looking at that and making sure he was okay. And he still had pulses and everything else. We got a package and sent the calf. And then I go to calf the either later that day or the next day. And he's had a stroke, TIA kind of stroke, but he was still kind of symptomatic from this thing. We're like, what the hell is that? So we scan him, he ends up having a piece of shrapnel in his right as carotid bifurcation. And he and it hit, must have hit, but it didn't penetrate it. And he ended up having some kind of you know vasospasm or you know arterial spasm or something, which caused some funny flow to his brain because he ended up getting better and he ended up having you know other than the the lower extremity wounds he was okay. But we let we were all like, I guess we're not going to touch that. So yeah, everybody just left it there. But that was you know another one where you know getting scanned was probably the only way we would have known what happened to him. But now. The big stuff that they needed to see, we usually would catch, and it would be distal stuff, if anything. It wasn't mm -hmm. usually a major change. Every Maybe it would be free air that wasn't appreciated on something where it was a low extremity wound, but then there was something that shot up, and then by the time we got through it again, we'd say, you know, maybe that's not normal, and have them look at least or run the bowel or something. What would you want your future family to know about your military medicine career if they unearth this podcast in a time capsule 50, 100 years from now? I got to do just about absolutely everything I ever wanted to do in the Army. And it's been a fantastic uh, career choice. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. Nowhere else can you be a neuroradiologist, but still go be a command surgeon, be a commander, jump out of airplanes, repel out of helicopters, fly around in helicopters, do all those things and still have a successful career. Most neuroradiologists, uh, 30 years from the time they start, they may be the department chief of a, or a section chief of a, of a major teaching hospital. And they've done that all their life. And they certainly are the expert. And that's a, that's a wonderful pathway. But if you want a pathway that gives you opportunities to do other things as well, the military gave that to me. And, and it also taught me more than I could have ever asked to, to, to deploy and serve others and take care of people that you don't know and try to bring peace to an area that hasn't seen peace in 30 years. And I'm proud to have had that opportunity. And it meant a lot to, uh, to especially serve uh, with 101st because I think that that deployment of all deployments, you know, or all, all the things that I've been able to do was probably the most meaningful because it just provided the chance to reassess what's important in life and, and come back from that a changed person that isn't probably getting too excited about the little stuff. And maybe I prioritize things differently and I, I look at life differently. And I think that that's probably the most uh, proud, proud to have the opportunity to serve and thankful that, uh, you know, everything went as well as it did. And it's been a, a really, really fun and rewarding career. 
We've been speaking with Colonel Mike Wirt. Mike, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us on War Docs, and thank you for your service to the nation. Oh, thank you for having me. It's my honor. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of War Docs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardox on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.